Hello, this is Intersection. Impeachment is a word in the news and on our minds in America right now. And an MU professor has written a book on impeachment history and law. Frank Bowman is the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. The book came out this year, but it was written well before the current developments on impeachment were in the news. Bowman says impeachment should be less of a historical oddity and more of a real political tool. We sat down recently and talked about impeachment in America, past and present, and what it means to impeach a president. Bowman told us each generation has to relearn impeachment and what it's about, and he considers his role to be part of that education. Here's our conversation. You've just written this book about impeachment. Can we start with a really basic question for a professor who's an expert on impeachment? What is impeachment? And uh, more importantly, what constitutes an impeachable offense? Well, both of those require would require really long answers to be complete, but I will try to give you short ones. Well, you have just written a book <laughs> about right. this. Well, impeachment is, uh, in simple terms, simply a means of removing government officials for various kinds of misconduct, or at least that's what it is for us here in the United States. Um, And in the United States, the mechanics are relatively simple. And here we're talking, by the way, only about the federal system. There are impeachment mechanisms in almost every state, as we saw, for example, during the recent uh, brouhaha over former Governor Greitens, there was considerable talk about whether or not he could be impeached. Uh, and there was a possibility of doing so under the Missouri state constitution. But the impeachment that most people are familiar with and that we, we talk about most of the time is under the federal constitution. And impeachment, technically speaking, is the process by which the House of Representatives uh, formulates a list of particulars, a list of charges, if you will, Um, that once it approves them, then go to the Senate for trial. In the Senate, a supermajority vote of two-thirds is required for conviction. If the government official is convicted under our Constitution, unlike uh, the British practice from which ours derived, the punishments or the consequences of conviction are quite limited. They're limited to two things. First, removal from office. And second, if the Senate takes a separate vote to do so, uh, the defendant can be disqualified from any future federal office holding. So that's in very short terms. That's what impeachment is under our system. So you've just mentioned, I mean, you're a law professor, so you're a great person to ask about this. But you point out in your book that this is really a political process more than a legal process. What are the common misconceptions we have about impeachment? Well, it's uh, worthwhile to begin talking about the notion that it is a political process. It's a curious hybrid, actually, of, of a political and legal process. It has all the attributes of legal process in the sense that um, it requires this enumeration of charges by the House. It requires a trial in the Senate. Uh, it requires a verdict uh, by the senators. And everyone agrees that there are you know, legal-like, legalistic processes that are, that are required to, uh, to affect an impeachment. But it's also true that because of the definition of conduct that 
can be impeachable under the federal constitution, which is to say treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. That definition is so broad that uh, it certainly includes a wide variety of behavior that need not necessarily be, be technically criminal. And therefore, it, and by design, impeachment was intended to be political in the sense that it asked the legislative branch to make determinations about uh, fitness for office, uh, make determinations about whether the continuation of someone in office presented a real danger to uh, the branch of government or the office which that person held, or more broadly, in the case, particularly in the case of presidents, to the whole constitutional order. Uh, so, yes, it is a political process, one that designedly includes a political judgment, but it also has a lot of the, the trappings of legalism. When we say it's a political process, in some ways we mean politics in the best sense of the word, not politics in the worst sense of the word. We mean it's political because it should be in the hands of the people and the electorate and those representing them to hold accountable power. Is that true? Yes, I think that's that's absolutely true. Uh, again, the impeachment over the centuries, and, and it was really begun by the, the British in, in the formal sense in about 1376. It's been around a really long time. And over the centuries where it's been employed in both Great Britain and the United States, it actually serves a number of functions. Some of them are sort of governmental housekeeping functions. For example, getting rid of in our case, uh, corrupt or incompetent federal judges, which otherwise who otherwise can't be gotten rid of because they have they have life appointments, and it's been used for other other reasons as well. But the thing that the framers, our framers, the American framers, were most interested in when they uh, put impeachment into the Constitution, and indeed the most important function that it served for British Parliament, was addressing circumstances when the entire constitutional framework was being put at some risk, or certainly at risk of some disorder, uh, by executive branch officials. You are listening to Intersection on KBIA, and we're talking with Missouri law professor Frank Bowman about his new book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. I'm Janet Saidi. You can see more on this conversation at kbia.org. Professor Bowman, before going any further, we should probably address the elephant in the room, which is we're having this conversation largely and what people are thinking of when we're talking about impeachment is they're thinking about discussions that are current right now. What, what are your thoughts as a law professor, um, historian on impeachment? What are your thoughts on the recent developments? I concluded a long time ago that Mr. Trump had engaged in behavior which, from a constitutional and historical standard, would have been considered impeachable. But uh, I don't think any of what's had gone before recently had gotten a great deal of, of, of political traction, and uh, House of Representatives seem to be floundering somewhat in trying to decide whether they should move forward expeditiously, whether they should call what they were doing an actual impeachment investigation or something else. 
And then came the Trump-Ukraine revelation of last week. I think that changes the calculus. I think it changes both the constitutional and the political calculus. Constitutionally, we can say that what we know of the current facts uh, regarding Mr. Trump's content with U contact with Ukraine amounts to plainly impeachable conduct. Um, one of the traditionally acceptable, indeed the one of the core reasons for impeaching uh, executive officials dating all the way back to British practice uh, in the 1300s, um, and certainly including what the framers intended to be impeachable, including uh, our uses of the impeachment power since, one of the core acceptable reasons for impeaching an executive official's abuse of power. When we say that, uh, a couple of things have to be made clear. First, uh, abuse of power necessarily implies that the official here, the president, has used powers that are given him quite legitimately by virtue of his office, but uses those powers for an improper, for an illegitimate reason. I think what we know of Mr. Trump's contact with the Ukraine and the events that preceded that telephone call plainly make out an impeachable abuse of power. And for that reason, I've come to the conclusion that not only are there a number of other grounds on which Mr. Trump might be impeached, but here is one which is plain, it's brazen, it's out in the open, despite what his defenders may say, it's undeniable. It is, I think, readily explained, and I think for that reason, we are proceeding down the path with the House representatives towards a very probable vote to impeach Donald Trump. It's been mentioned that this is not really the first time we've talked about impeachment. Of course, there's Clinton impeachment proceedings you know, from the late 90s, but apparently there were impeachment discussions surrounding you know, George W. Bush, um, even Obama even before they were in office. Is that true? And is this not so rare for there to be impeachment discussions these days about our presidents? Well, <clears throat> I think in every era, uh, partisans of one stripe or another who really don't like the sitting president may murmur about impeachment. I don't think that's uh, particularly uncommon. I do think, and there's actually been books written about this, that impeachment talk has probably come, become more common in recent years, perhaps as a reflection of the more polarized character uh, of our own politics. And also by the fact that if you go back you know, through my legal career, at the time Nixon was, wasn't actually impeached, the by the way, the House, the, the Judiciary Committee, the House of Representatives voted articles of impeachment, but they never got to the full House because um, Nixon resigned before they could. But at that time, impeachment was really thought of as being an, 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 an historical antique. Nobody had seriously talked about impeaching a president since uh, as Andrew Johnson in, the, in 1868. Uh, and it was really thought quite remarkable that anyone would even seriously discuss uh, impeaching a president. Uh, and it was tr treated as, as a really earthquake kind of event. Once 
Nixon left office under the shadow of impeachment, I think it became more thinkable. You mentioned, and I think you sort of consider the process of impeachment as a way of addressing power when the constitutional order, I think is the way you put it, when the constitutional order is at risk. When in our history, you've mentioned a couple of them, um, do you think the constitutional order has been at risk? That you think, uh, and, and how are these cases instructive? To us today, well, the the, the business of error, the notion that, that impeachment is appropriate when constitutional order is at risk, is primarily uh, applied to the impeachment of presidents, and certainly two of the three cases in which presidents have either been impeached or come perilously close to being so, uh, I think, are illustrations of that kind of um, historical era. First one being Andrew Johnson, uh, who was impeached uh, in 1868. Uh, that's a long tale, um, but I think what one can say is that the uh, the ferment that gave rise to the impeachment of, of Johnson, although he was acquitted by one vote in the Senate, was uh, a consequence of the end of the Civil War, uh, the most... Um, you know, catastrophic event in our national history, and and the the aftermath of the Civil War certainly the most formative period uh, of our national history, and, and Johnson was impeached for a variety of reasons, but the the long and the short of it was that he had a vision for the country's future which involved restoring the states of the Confederacy to something very like the condition they'd been in before the Civil War, largely maintaining the racial hierarchy in the South. You know, slavery formally was, was abolished by the 13th Amendment, but uh, Johnson was plainly in favor of keeping the black population of the South in a condition uh, very close to peonage, if not formal slavery, uh, and elevating the, the re-elevating the white leadership class that had essentially taken the Southern states out of the Union to control of that region, whereas his opponents in Congress, the Republicans, some of them called radical Republicans in the uh, the terms of the day, were certainly not, none of them were what we would now call liberals, none of them even on racial matters were anything like what we would call liberal. Um, most of them had lots of personal prejudices against black people, but they had a, a certainly a much more um, liberal view of how the social structure of the South ought to be reconstructed, and they understood that for that reconstruction to occur, black people had to have rights, and they had to have rights of political participation. Uh, they were determined to to reconstruct the South along something like those lines, and Johnson was absolutely opposed to doing so. And, and the, out of this came the 14th Amendment. Is that uh, the correct? 14th Amendment was, was part of this fight with Johnson. Actually, Johnson tried to prevent the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment. So this, the, the the conflict that led to his impeachment, although it it turned on a technical question of whether or not he had legally fired the Secretary of War, the real conflict was over the constitutional f structure of the country, the constitutional order, the constitutional future. The Congress had one view of how the country ought to to travel into the future, and he had a very different and more regressive one. Um, Likewise, in the case of, of Richard Nixon, 
um, it was a time of great political ferment. I mean, this was during uh, or in, in the aftermath of the uh, of the Vietnam War, um, the, the great rights movements of, of the '60s and early '70s, uh, civil rights, um, you know, rights of of, of of sexual equality, tremendous ferment, and among other things, uh, people opposed. Nixon as president because, the, in, in their view, he stood on the wrong side of some of those issues. But more particularly in his case, he endangered the, endangered the constitutional order because he simply felt that he didn't have to obey the law in pursuing his political objectives. And in fact, that he could use and misuse the organs of government uh, to maintain himself in power and to crush his enemies. Uh, and that, of course, became the scandal we know as Watergate, and that really represented a, a, a real threat to constitutional order, one where Congress acquitted itself very well, not just Congress, but the press, uh, the, prosecu the prosecution, uh, prosecutors of the Justice Department, um, most elements of, of, of American society of, of what broadly is its constitutional order acquitted themselves very well and in the end overcame their their partisan impulses, and decided that this man had to go. Now, the question, of course, is, uh, you know, are the circumstances we face now more akin to something like that, or are they more akin to um, the Clinton fiasco in which uh, Mr. Clinton, although he undoubtedly committed uh, the crime of, of perjury uh, in lying about his liaisons with Monica Lewinsky, everybody, most people seem to think he was a pretty darn good president. And the, he escaped removal because uh, the, his offenses, real though they were, really didn't pose any challenge to the constitutional order, certainly were not of a sufficient uh, gravity. It's interesting that even in the Johnson case from 1868, which I see, I have seen as more of a, a very idealistic in origin, that, that, that it's more about ideology and it's more about the future of the country and what our country stands for. But in fact, it was kind of hinging on whether he'd fired a secretary of war, um, maybe an overreach of power, if that's correct. And uh, it, it strikes me that in, in almost every case, right up to Trump in a way, um, but certainly with Johnson, Nixon, and now with Trump, there is a sort of an interplay, a sort of tension between what the country stands for on one side uh, and a kind of crisis in that question and then an overreaching of power. How does that balance happen? Is that an oversimplistic way of looking at this, though? No, I think it – I mean, first of all, of course, when we talk about presidents in particular uh, abusing power, uh, that in and of itself, if it's – of sufficient magnitude presents its own challenge to the constitutional order because the constitutional order, our constitutional order, presupposes that president's power is limited, uh, that it is properly checked by the other branches, that the president is not to abuse power, um, and the mere the uh, fact that the president is abusing his executive authority is in and of itself uh, can in and of itself be a, a uh, both a crime sometimes and also an impeachable offense because it presents this kind of challenge. Uh, but the other the, the the other point I think you may be making is that sometimes 
the real reasons, the motivations for thinking about impeachment uh, are uh, a little bit different um, than the particular charges that are brought. Okay. Uh, the motivations may have to do with a, a really deep constitutional conflict, but because of the legalistic structure of, of impeachment where there's this insistence that we have identifiable wrongdoing that makes its way into articles of impeachment and we have a trial, that pushes people who disfavor a particular president, think of that president as being really dangerous to the country, it makes them identify some, some particular behavior or pattern of behavior or wrongdoing or crime that can become the subject of one or more articles of impeachment. And sometimes the, the, there's a little bit of tension or disjunction between those things. The thing you identify is quite characteristic. Okay. We're talking with law professor Frank Bowman about his book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. You're listening to Intersection on KBIA. I'm Janet Saidi. You can see more on this conversation at kbia.org. You know, you've been watching impeachments since 1974 with the Nixon when you must have been a kid, the Nixon impeachment, and you've just written this book up to now in 2019. What about the process of writing the book and also the impeachment talks <laughs> that you've been involved with as a result of this book um, or the discussions and the dialogue around the book? What has surprised you, if anything? How do you go forward into the future after writing this book? I don't know that it, it, this is a surprise, but I, I will say that what happens in every period of American history when presidential impeachment is at least seriously discussed is a process of re-education. Each generation has to figure out what this whole impeachment thing is again and has to be told about it again. It was true in Nixon. It was true in Clinton. Uh, it's true again now. It's something that happens as a, as a sort of a national trauma and everybody forgets about it. And that's certainly uh, going on again here. There are a vast number of misconceptions about um, the way impeachment works, some of which we've already talked about here today. And uh, my, I see my job mostly as re-educating uh, the American public, uh, or at least that tiny fraction of it that I get to talk to, uh, about uh, a, a very old practice, but a very important uh, practice in British and American constitutional law. How do you personally and how can we as citizens tune out the noise because there are going to be accusations of political play, political gamemanship on both sides? How do we transcend that? And how do you transcend that to look at the facts? Um, how do we as media transcend this? This is a really unfairly difficult question probably. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, you're surrounded by the noise. Even NPR listeners can't tune out um, accusations flying back and forth on both sides. This is a political process. But how do we transcend the politicization of it and the gamemanship to just kind of look at what's important to us? What are our values as a country? I'm not sure it's entirely possible to tune out the noise. We live in an environment that's far different than the one that 
existed even during the Clinton impeachment and certainly radically different than the one that existed when President Nixon was driven from office. Uh, the level of distraction is infinitely higher. Um, the, uh, the divisions in the media um, and, and the polarization in the media make it very, very hard to sort of rise above the fray, if you will. Yes, this is what I worry about. That said, uh, you know, for, for all of us, whether Republicans or Democrats, independents or whatever, there are a couple of things we should try to do as hard as it's going to be. First, try to examine the facts as best you can. Look for when you hear an outrageous new allegation, try to, ref to examine the sources. Try to look at the information that's available. Try to develop a sense of which sources seem to you reliable and which not so much. That's certainly a, a, an important thing to do. Um, but also, I think we always have to ask each of us, if the allegations being made here against Mr. Trump or against anybody else, uh, it, let me put it this way, if, if you are a person who either approves of Mr. Trump, supports him, um, or um, certainly is, is, is uh, somewhat on the fence, um, consider whether if the allegations that are being made here, um, indeed, most of it's just undeniable fact. I mean, we have the transcript of the president saying what he says. But if similar things had been said by a president of whom you disapprove, what would you think? And on the Democratic side as well, I think uh, Democrats, uh, before they leap to, to conclusions, about you know, diversions or factual allegations that may come out, they too have to ask, well, um, how would I feel if, if, if the positions were reversed? Uh, how would I analyze this? Would I immediately leap uh, to the partisan barricades or uh, might I feel a little differently about, about this if it were being said uh, by someone of whom I approve or uh, allegations were being made against someone of whom I approve. It's hard to maintain that level of disinterestedness, particularly when we're constantly under assault from all directions. But we have to try because this is this is serious stuff. This is no longer this is no longer hypothetical. This is no longer purely political maneuvering. I mean, some people may attribute the House's move to impeachment as being, you know, pure politics. Uh, I mean, myself, I don't believe it to be so. I think this is either serious matters. But certainly we, we are now in a zone where there is a very high likelihood that a president of the United States will at least be impeached in the House and face trial in front of the Senate. And these are matters of real national consequence, not only for now, but for the precedents that we set for the future about we, how we handle what is, to use a phrase that has been overused over the last couple of years, a real constitutional crisis. It behooves all of us to try to be our best selves, to try to be dispassionate, to try to look beyond our temporary political um, uh, allegiances and ask 
honestly, what's best for the country here? All right. Well, we'll stay tuned. Thank you so much, Professor Roman, for coming into Intersection. Thank you for having me. That was MU and Georgetown Law Professor Frank Bowman talking with us about impeachment in America. His book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, The History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Intersection is produced by Olivia Love, Sidney Steele, Bill Finn. I'm Janet Saidi. Thanks for joining us this week. 